Well, good morning, everyone. Um, like Chuck said, my name is Jonathan Clark. Happy New Year. Um, I am the campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship up at New Mexico State Uni- University. Some of you may have heard of, NM- of uh, RUF, and uh, RUF is it's a campus ministry, but it's not just a campus ministry. Uh, it's a campus ministry of the church, which means it's your campus ministry as uh, members and um, yeah, members and congregants of this church. And so in a lot of ways, this is your campus ministry um, as much as it is uh, the Lord. So we're grateful for your prayer. We're grateful for your support. Um, and so it's an honor for me to come and share with you what the Lord is doing there and uh, to bring God's word this morning. God is at work at NMSU. We're excited for this upcoming semester. Um, I'm joined this morning with, uh, by my wife, Caroline, um, and we are expecting a baby in two months, a little less than two months. Um, so we're excited about that. And then we also have a student um, from NMSU who's here with us this morning, uh, Patrick, who's joining us uh, this morning in worship. So, um, yeah, if you have questions or are interested about with RUF, what the Lord is doing, what, what, we're, what, what we're doing this semester, I'd love to meet you. I'd love to put you on an email list and uh, tell you more about what's going on. But uh, that's not why we're here this morning. We're here to sit at the Lord's feet and hear from his word. So um, turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, um, or it's printed in your bulletin. Uh, And I'll read God's word. Um, This is God's word to us this morning. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for how it continues with each new reading, each new study and examination to peel back the layers of our own selfishness and pride and sinfulness and to show us Jesus and his great mercy and his love for us. Father, Son, Spirit, we pray that you would be present with us now as we examine your word, that we would be changed people through it, and that you would send us out more equipped to love you and love those around us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the last few weeks, I'm sure... Like, well, I'm sure like you, I've been, uh, I've been caught up in a lot of politics. I listen to NPR a lot, so I've been wa- hearing NPR, and it seems like every single time the radio is on, they're talking about the federal government and the shutdown, right? They're calling, and it's always back and forth, back and forth about the government and the mess that's going on. And I heard an interesting uh, piece on, the, on NPR, a Washington Post political columnist was, uh, he was talking, he'd written an op-ed in the Post, and he said that he expects 
he's a political scientist, he studies these things. He says he expects 2019 to be one of the most deeply divided political year, years in our country's history. Deeper division than maybe ever. And, and uh, you know, we, we look at our government, we look at what's happening in the White House and the, and the House and the Senate, we're just like, yeah, that's probably going to happen. It's going to be really deeply divided. So I feel this heaviness, this weight of the division in our country. But it's not just, I don't feel that just on the national level, right? I think of myself as I come back from Christmas break, and I, for many of you probably, as you come back from Christmas break and um, family, time with family, and maybe some of you are still smarting or still stinging from conflict within your family, disunity in your family, from full-on fights between parents and kids or siblings and siblings or just you're like, man, I had hopes for this season, this Christmas season, and it just didn't pan out. There was some conflict and disunity in that. And um, I'd be willing to bet big money that in your family, especially in your extended family, that there's at least one significant dissension or disunity. Uh, and, and it's not just on a federal level. It's not just on a family level, right? There's also this disunity, this division within our churches, right? In our home church, Certainly along denominational or racial ethnic lines, we see this disunity, this fragmentation. And so I think as we, we enter 2019, right, we see disunity on a federal level, on a governmental political level. We see disunity in our own homes, our families, and disunity in our churches, right? Happy New Year. <laughs> But that's the reality of what we're entering into, right? There's, there's this, this conflict. And, and then even when there's not just conflict, there's tons of isolation. There's tons of loneliness. This Christmas break, I know of at least three students at New Mexico State who chose not to go home for Christmas because it was easier to be in the dorms. It was easier to not go home because of the, the, it just wasn't a good place to be. And so they chose the isolation over that. And that made me so sad. That, they would, that, that, that that's how they would have to live their, spend their Christmas. So we live in this age that's incredibly either isolated, lonely, disconnected, or divided, con- conflict-filled. We live in a society that is incredibly isolated and incredibly divided. Communities, churches, which foster and, and nurture that conflict or that isolation. And, and so there's no denying it as we go into 2019 Our world is in desperate need of warmth and of community and of care for each other. We need the acceptance from friends and family. We need to be heard by our friends. We need peace in our churches. We need warmth in our politics. So as we enter this 2019, is that possible? Is that even possible? Well, let's look at this text and see what it does has to say. This is good news. There's gospel in this. So let's look and see the gospel hope that God gives us for this community, for this unity that we need. So this text that we just read that we're going to spend the next minutes looking at, it's most often used in churches, in in the Christian tradition, to talk about Christology. Now Christology is the study of Christ. It's the study of who Christ is, what he has done, and, and, and specifically this text is used to examine how Christ is both God and human at the same time. And in fact, this, this, uh, there's, a, there's a section in this that we read that's verses 5 through 11. This is, this is an interesting tidbit for the day. The most commented on piece of Scripture in the whole Bible. More commentaries, more academic and theological and reflective and pious thought has been put into these verses than any other piece in the Bible, reflecting on who Christ is 
and what he's done. And while I don't want to take away one bit from that Christology, and we're going to spend some time on that later, I want to ask, why is it in here? What is this actually for? And, And I don't think Paul wrote this explicitly for Christology. It's there, but that's not why he wrote this. He wrote this not to explain the mystery of God, but he wrote this to exhort and to incentivize and to call us, to call the church to humility. In Paul's mind, if we can be humble, then we can be in community. If we can be humble, then we can be in humility. So what this passage shows us today is that that humility, I mean that community and that unity that we so desperately need comes through humility and that humility comes through Christ. The unity and the community that we need today comes through humility and that humility comes through Christ. So let's dig into this and see how that works. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Look with me, it says here, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same Spirit, being in full accord and of one mind. So what's going on here? Well, actually, there's a lot going on here on a very technical and even linguistic level. And it's it's a bit of a difficult language to see what's happening. So let's try and piece it apart. Notice here he says, if. If there is any encouragement in Christ. So, grammar lesson. We call this, in the grammatical world, we call this a first-class conditional. And you don't need to remember that part. But what you need to know here is that with a first-class conditional, the truth of the if statement is assumed. The truth of the if statement is assumed. So here, let me give you an example. Imagine my wife comes to me and says, Jonathan, if you love me, take me to dinner. If you love me, take me to dinner. Well, she assumes I love her. She knows that I love her. She knows that I love her. But here's the important part. The punch, the rhetorical force behind that is so much stronger than she just, if she just said, I want to go to dinner. But when she says, if you love me, take me to dinner. Do you see the difference between those two statements and the force, the power behind, if you love me, take me to dinner? Now, that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, if, there is, if it is true that there is encouragement in Christ, and it is, if it is true that there is participation in the Spirit, and it is, so there's, there's, there's force here. There's rhetorical power in what he's saying by saying that if. It's not like, well, maybe there's power or participation in the Spirit. If it's true. He's like, no, it's true. Now, there's, there's rhetorical power behind that, but then look what the next thing he says in the beginning of verse 2. He says, complete my joy by having the same mind. So he's piling a command. That's a command, complete my joy. He's piling a command or an imperative on top of something that already has a lot of rhetorical punch to it. Complete my joy. That's a command, and it's the grammatical core of this verse. He's saying, this is is what I want you to be doing, is to complete my joy by being united. And I want us today to feel the, the, the force, the power in Paul's rhetoric here in language. It's with great skill, great rhetorical skills, he both describing what an ideal Christian community can look like, describing what unity can be, and he's commanding us to seek it. Do you see how he's doing that here? Look at the words he uses in verse 1. Encouragement, comfort, 
participation. And that word in the Greek is, maybe some of you have heard of it, it's koinonia, which can be translated as fellowship, community. It talks about affection and sympathy. What's he doing here, friends? He's describing what community can be. He's describing even an ideal community, one there's, where there's tranquility and love, common goals, no dissension, love, a perfect community. Can you imagine, can you imagine what a community like that would look like? Imagine if you lived in a community where members loved each other, where they cried with each other, where they laughed, where even when there was conflict, they could do it with love and care for each other. No, no selfishness, no other people trying to use others for their own good. And so what Paul is doing here, he's being aspirational. He's, pointing that, he's painting this picture of what the community can look like, and he's saying, aspire to this, dream with me for what our community could look like. The closest thing I've, I've experienced to this, um, this kind of ideal community, was I worked at a, uh, a wholesale plant nursery for 14 summers in Colorado. I grew up in Colorado, Colorado Springs. And when I was 14, I started working for this nursery, this wholesale nursery, and we'd sell plants all along the, the region. And um, I would go back every summer for 14 years. I spent half of my life's summers working at this place. I'd work there in high school, and I'd go back. I'd go to college. I went to college all the way in New York City, and I was like, I don't want to stay in New York. I want to go back and work at this place. In seminary, I went back. Even after seminary, I went back to this place. Why? Because it was such a sweet place to be. In fact, I just left it two weeks ago. I, I mean, I tear up every time I have to leave it because it's so special. We would sit we, 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 would, we would work hard, we'd work hard, work our fingers to the bone, and then af- always in the afternoons we'd sit around and swim in the pond and laugh and have wine and cheese and cry together. When I think of heaven, I think it's going to be like this nursery that I worked at. We'd cry, we'd, sometimes we'd cry about things that are funny, sometimes we'd cry about things that are sad. It was a heavenly community. And so here, in verses 1 and 2, Paul is describing, he says, this is what the church can be. He aspires to and he commands that kind of community to the Philippian church. He says, be that ideal community. The church should be this picture of warmth, of fellowship, of sympathy, and affection. And yet, they had some work to do, just like we do. If you turn ahead just two chapters in verse, uh, chapter 2 of verse 4, he names names. He says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, <laughs> think with me. Can you, imagine, can you imagine that your name goes down in history, in Scripture, as a, <laughs> like Paul calling you out and saying, I entreat Jonathan and Chuck, get along. <laughs> and everyone in all of history is reading and just like, we're going to get up there and meet them and be like, oh. <laughs> It's going to be pretty. So, but what a relief that the ancient church struggled with the same thing that we struggle with today, right? That the Philippian church had the same issues of conflict that we do. And in fact, in verse 2, he says, agree in the Lord. And in the Greek, that's the same phrasing that he says in verse 2 when he says, be of one mind. Be of one mind. He's saying them. He says, be of one mind. Then he names names and says, you, be of one mind. Agree in the Lord. But then in verse 3, he flips it on the negative. Look what he does at verse 3. 
He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So he tells us what is one of the threats to this community. Here he is painting this picture of what community can look like. And now he says, here's the threat to this community. Here's the threat to it. Well, what does he say they are? Selfish ambition and conceit. Well, what is selfish ambition? Well, selfish ambition, it's the hostile lust to have it my way, even to the point of putting others down. Selfish ambition treats the world, treats relationships, treats community like a zero-sum game. It says the pie is so big and what you have means I can't have. And so it basically says I got to get as much as I can. I have to get as much as I can. Imagine, maybe some of you have kids, maybe you have nephews. Imagine over a Christmas toy, there's one toy and three kids. What's going to happen? Man, it's going to break out. It's going to break out because that selfish ambition that's in the heart of children is a little more explicit than it is in all of our hearts. They're just going to be like, there's one toy, and if you're playing with it, I'm not. So we got to go. Conceit, the second thing he names. What is conceit? It's like a vain or cheap pride. It's the pride of being a big fish in a little pond. Imagine, if you will, a, a quarterback who's at a no-name school, but he's, you know, he's okay for his school, but it's a no-name school, strutting around. I'm the quarterback. Well, you're a no-name quarterback at a no-name school. That's vain conceit. That's the conceit that he's talking about. It's, putting, it's the proud declaration that my goals and my priorities are more important, more valuable than yours, more important than the community's. And to put these together, this selfish ambition, this conceit, they're the declaration, the deep desire to have it my way or the highway. And at heart, it's pride. It's the declaration that my needs, my desires are more important than the community's. Pride does two things to community. One, it puts the self over community. And two, it puts the self instead of community. First, it puts self over community, which destroys community. Because if you have a bunch of individuals who are all rushing around trying to get theirs, then, then it's going to fragment. We see this all the time. But it also puts self instead of community, which isolates us into little silos of self to where we're just stuck either streaming TV or on our phones or wasting time doing what we want rather than reaching out and caring for others. So it's this pride, it's the height of arrogance which destroys community and isolates us into little silos of ourself. And here's the shocking fact, friend. We all do this. We all do this. Some of you might be thinking, now wait, Jonathan, I'm not that bad. I can't be that bad. I might have a moment or two, especially when you're around my in-laws and you don't know my in-laws. But I'm not that bad. And I would argue that all of us in our heart of hearts we are. We all, like verse 4 says, we look to our own interests, even if it means ignoring or crushing others. And I lump myself into this, the ways that I ignore my wife when she needs me to be close just because I've had a long day of ministry. Or the times that I ignore a text because I'm just like, "Ah, I don't want to deal with them. Or the times that I'll put my headphones in on campus and just walk around, I'll see a student and be like, I don't want to talk to them, they're hard. I do it. Friends, we all do this. We put ourselves in front of others. And so we start to begin fragmenting and destroying the communities. What I'm trying to say to that each of us in greater or lesser ways, we deny others love and even hurt others because they're a threat to our agenda. 
And at the heart of all of our disunity, from a federal governmental level all the way down to our marriages, our families, our churches, it's, it's, that, it's that pride. It's that at the heart of it is pride, and in the conflict, it just creates conflict and isolation. So what's the solution? Is there any hope for our community for this sustainable joy? Well, of course, look with this. Look with you here in verse 4. He says, let each of you. Well, no, verse 3, he says, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. So what is he saying here? He says, well, if pride is the poison of community, then humility is the medicine. Humility is the fuel that the, of the engine that the community needs. Paul tells us if you want joy, if you want community, if you want what I've just described in verse 1, then you've got to have humility. You've got to have the humility to look to others' interests. You've got to have the humility to put others' needs in front of your own. So humility is the solution to unity and community. Humility is the solution of what we desperately need. Now, if I were to just stop there, and say, go out and be humble people, that would hardly be good news. In fact, I would argue that it would be crushing news. A few weeks ago, again on the radio, I heard about a group of, of uh, people in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, who um, they would get together at the, the battlefield of Gettysburg, and uh, some of them were very progressive Democrats, and some of them were Republicans, and what they would do is they would just try to meet on a battlefield, you know, the greatest battlefield in, in our country's history, and try to have some practice civility. They would try to get together and just have public conversations and say, you know, here's a very significant place in our nation's history. Let's try and get together and get along. And the, the, the kind of the goal of the piece uh, that I heard on the radio was like, now you go do the same. You know, here's a group of people in Pennsylvania who are trying to talk to each other. Go do the same. And it, uh, it kind of fell flat, the radio piece did. It just kind of was like, that's all you got? Go, go try harder. Go do, go do what they're doing. And if I were to send you out right now and just say, stop being proud and go be humble, that would be a crushing weight. It would be a crushing weight. It would be, church would be little more than a motivational seminar. And maybe you would go out and succeed for a bit and feel better for a bit. But mark my words, you would not last a week before that desire for your own interest would creep back in again. And you'll see how hard it is to give up your own agenda, that humility is really hard to pursue, that humility is a paradoxical virtue. The minute you start to try and get it, the minute you start to say, oh yeah, I'm getting a little humble. Ah, oh, dang it. <laughs> you can't force, you can't will humility. You can't just go out and, and be a humbler person. If I were to send you out there, it would, it would condemn you to a frustrating, condemning crushing demand to fix yourself so what starts out as a motivational speech would end up crushing you in your own inability to change robbing you of joy condemning you to lo loneliness and to despair and that's not good news good news at all but christianity doesn't stop there it doesn't say go out and try to be humble it doesn't say go out and make yourself another a better person it says well let's pick up here have this mind, verse 5, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of man. Look with me at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Now this is, of course, incredibly dense. There's five sermons here. But what's, what's happening here? What's happening here? It's the God of the universe. The God of the universe who demands all the honor, all the glory. If there's any person in the universe who can say, I deserve it. I, 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 I should get the whole pie. What does he do? He gives all of it up. And the book, if you study this, there's a, there's a gradual lowering. Each step, Christ lowers himself more. Each step, he lowers himself more. That Here he is. He is in the form of God. And he lowers himself down. He is actually God himself, the most beautiful, content, powerful king in the whole creation, saying, no, I don't need that. This is not something I have to hold on to. Not like a toy with his, a child with his toys. Like oh, I have to. He says, no, I don't need it. I give it up. And he lowers himself. But not only does he lower himself, he takes human flesh. The incarnation is the enfleshment of God himself among us. So not only does he take human flesh, he, t- he doesn't come in human form and say, oh, I'm going to be a king. No, he says, I'm coming down and I'm going to become a servant. I'm going to be a poor carpenter. But not only that, he becomes obedient to death. God himself dies, but not only does he die, he dies in the most painful and humiliating way a human being can die in all of history. Naked, mocked, torn to pieces physically, emotionally, and spiritually just lowering himself down to where he is nothing. Nothing. He gives up all the rights of privileges of deity and gives all of them up. It's like a king giving up his throne to become a slave. It's like a creator becoming creation. All of it. All of it. He takes all of it. The worst pain, the worst, worst depression, the worst loneliness, guilt, and shame that anyone has ever experienced, God himself experienced, Paul tells us. You see what's happening here. God himself, who deserves all the honor and shame in the world, humbles himself to bear all the shame and guilt in the world. Do You see what's happening here. This is the most humble act in history. The most humble act in history is done by God himself. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Look with me at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. What does it mean? It means that because of Christ's ultimate humility, he receives ultimate glory. He receives ultimate authority. So what do we see here? We see that Jesus is the ultimate model of putting personal interests aside and seeking the good of the community, seeking the interests of others. But not only is he the perfect model of humility, he's also the perfect power to humility. Here's what I mean by that. If Jesus is really God, if he really did what he does, what this says he did, then that means by faith we are united with him. His Holy Spirit comes into our lives and begins to give us the power to actually imitate and follow what Christ has done. So no longer is it me sending you out and saying, go be humble, but it means that the Holy Spirit, God himself, 
The Spirit who raised Christ from the dead is now at work in you and me, creating that humility. And by reflecting on His work, by letting the Holy Spirit till and work in our hearts, by meditating His love, we begin to be filled with His love and are humbled. The Gospel does not say, try harder to go serve others in humility. The Christian Gospel says, you can't do it. But Christ has done it, and by believing in Him, you can actually become a more humble person. Do you see here, friends, the difference between Christianity and every other thought system? Maybe some of you are wondering, Christianity is just another system of ethics or philosophy or or way of living. And, And I would make the claim that it is not that there is actually a distinct difference, a qualitative difference between Christianity and every other philosophy or social ethic in the world. Because Christianity says God himself has done everything. You don't have to do it. You just believe in it. And God begins to work in you to create that humility. God, the humble servant, humbles himself to give us humility. And as we meditate that, as we appropriate that into our own hearts, as we confess and give up on our own pride, and as we study Christ's grace and mercy and humility on our behalf, we are changed from the inside out. And we can begin to become a more humble people. And what happens when we start to become humble people ourselves? It's like dominoes. It just starts falling. We start serving those around us, which gives them the freedom to start serving them around us. We start caring for each other. We start becoming that ideal community. We start becoming what Paul exhorts us to. It starts with Jesus. It starts with filling our minds with what Christ has done and then starting to ask, how can I apply that to others around me in my family? in my church, in my marriage, in my workplace. Teasing out Christ's humility to me, to those around us. Looking towards others' interests as Christ did to ours. So what do we see in this passage? First and foremost, we see Jesus Christ, the God-man, showing us what ultimate humility looks like. And we see that Paul is calling us, exhorting us, aspiring us, commanding us to that same humility to each other. And that with that kind of humility, we can start to become a more united, communal, loving, caring community. Now, if this is true, how does your week look different? Well, first of all, be challenged this month as we approach 219. Be challenged by Christ's humility anew. Maybe some of you for the first time Maybe some of you for the 40th time. Be challenged anew by Christ's humility of him lowering himself. But then, don't just stay there. Let it spur you to greater humility and service and how you can love one another. How can you look towards the interests of others in your sphere, in your network of church, family, friends, community? Perhaps find one relationship this month that you say, I want to I apply Christ's humility to my life into this relationship. In the church and in your family, you can give up the my way or highway view and knowing that Christ has given you everything you need to be humble. Friends, if we can begin to do that as a community, as a church, we will look different from the rest of our world. And the world will look at us and go, what is with these Christians? And we can say, we have a great Savior 
who has humbled himself and given us humility so that we can love others. May God do that in each one of us. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for how it peels back our sin and our pride, convicts us but doesn't leave us there, shows us what Christ has done on our behalf. Spirit, we pray that you would use your word anew to create humility and unity and community in this church, in our community, in Las Cruces, in New Mexico, in Texas, in El Paso. We pray this for your kingdom and your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.